Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. Hey everyone, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, so much of our national political conversation focuses on the nation's capital, but a lot of the action happens at the state level. And today's guest has her eye on flipping state houses from red to blue. That's right. Jessica Post is here. She is president of the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee. That's a fancy way of saying she's the woman in charge of getting more Democrats elected to state legislatures. We're going to talk to her in a few, Scott. But first, I want to reintroduce you to my friend from South Florida, WLRN's Katie Swatowski-Munoz. You might remember Well, you probably do because you've been talking to her in the last few weeks. But we spoke to her about a year ago comparing Florida and California. And Katie and I are out with another comparison a year later. Katie, welcome to The Breakdown. Good to have you back. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. It's great to be here. So just to kind of summarize it for people who may not be familiar with the original uh, investigation that you did, you were looking at how Florida and California, in particular San Francisco and the Miami-Dade County area, how they dealt differently with the pandemic. And just real quick, the summary from the first, when you looked at a year ago, what was the sort of bottom line, Marisa? Yeah, so we teamed up with Reveal a year ago, and we wanted to like have this really in-depth look at like, oh, did not locking down in Florida make it's so much worse there or, or was it not and like we just couldn't say it was too early um and so we decided to kind of come back a year later i mean the one thing i will say we did find both times is this idea that like no matter what government does no matter what policymakers do individual decisions often have a very outsized impact on public health stuff right so whether you're in florida or here you may have decided to keep a mask on and not go to a restaurant or you might have decided the opposite and that's gonna no matter what your governor did make a difference and katie in florida of course the governor ron DeSantis uh, made a big deal continues to make a big deal out of having kept the economy largely open. To what extent has that been the the case at the local level in cities? And what difference does it seem to have made now that we're, you know, a year beyond the initial reporting you guys did? Well, I think one of the things that's been really funny for South Floridians down here is to to see that California has just fully reopened this week. Everyone here is kind of like, wait, that's so strange. We've been open for the majority of the last year. And so that's a big contrast that I think sticks out to people Um, And we're still seeing, of course, you know, some labor shortages when it comes to the restaurant industry um, and things like that. And and everyone has got signs in the windows that say we're hiring. And it's been this really interesting contrast, because I think especially when Maurice and I did this project last year, you got one Florida that um, left everything up to local officials at the city and county level to decide. And a year later, that's really completely flipped and we're a completely different Florida in the sense that the governor has really controlled, taken back that local control. And so you've seen him mandate areas that wanted to keep bars closed and say, no, 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 wait a minute, we're going to we're going to open bars up, things like that. Yeah. And so, Marisa, in trying to compare the outcomes of these two places, how did you 
What were some of the things you looked to and how did you make sure it was apples to apples? Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing we did was call up epidemiologists in both states and just like ask them what they thought. And they kind of told us similar things. They said, look at death rates. Deaths don't lie, right? Testing and cases at the beginning was really funky to kind of figure out. We didn't know if we were getting everyone. Deaths are probably still an undercount everywhere, but we know that at least it's a hard number. Um, You can't really fudge whether someone's alive or dead. So that was big. And then we also continued to look at things like vaccine rates and transmission rates. Um, And you want me to tell you what we found? Yeah, please do. (laughs) So, I mean, essentially a year later, I think that um, the, the sort of headline is more people died and got sick in Florida than would have likely if they had had the similar type of lockdowns here. Um, Vaccine rates there are definitely lower than here. They're better statewide than when we look at the local level. And we compared a community here, a Latino community in the Mission District and a black community in Miami Gardens, Florida, and really found that San Francisco had a lot more success in getting Latinos vaccinated than uh, the leaders there did. Um, And I think that you know, on the economy, the jury is still a little bit out. Our unemployment rate's a lot higher here than it is in Florida. However, a lot of economists think we're actually going to come out stronger than states like Florida that didn't lock down as hard. And so, you know, it's still a little like murky, but I think we can say for sure that there are thousands of families that lost loved ones in Florida that would not have had they had more similar outcomes as California. Well, and I think, Katie, in, in Florida and other governors in red states, they've sort of said, well, you know, there's a uh, there's a cost to having people unemployed and there's a cost to businesses uh, shutting down completely. How, how is your state evaluating? I mean, this is one of the things you and Marisa looked into is like, what's the value of a, of a life? You know, there are different ways of looking at at the quality of life, the cost of life, you know, if, if people are seniors, um, you know, who get sick versus, you know, younger kids who aren't going to school because everything, I mean, like, how do you, how do you evaluate all those uh, outcomes and those, those costs of shutting down? Well, you're right. It really does come down to how does Florida value somebody? And so in in one sense, we did put quite a big emphasis on seniors and vaccinating seniors first and getting them vaccinated before the general population, before we rolled it out to 50 year olds and 40 year olds. And that I think that DeSantis has been praised. He's been praised extensively for that. And the epidemiologist we talked to from the University of Florida in Gainesville, her name is Cindy Prins. And one of the things we talked to her about was that sense of, yeah, individuals in Florida could have acted despite what Governor DeSantis was saying. But all of these actions add up to, you know, the contrast w- when we look at California was some of the concerns about mental health, everything being closed. The, the idea that people in Florida really did feel because some things were open and we were sort of, quote unquote, open for normalcy that people could go back to work and keep up and pay bills. And that was a big deal here. Yeah. And Marisa, you talked to epidemiologist uh, Bob Wachter, Dr. Bob Wachter at UCSF, and he said something interesting, which was that the Florida situation humbles yeah. us. What did he mean by that? I love that quote. I mean, what he means is that a year ago, looking at the decisions Governor DeSantis made versus the decisions Governor Newsom was making, they would have thought that the situation down there would have been a lot worse than it ended up being Um, and that it would have been a lot better in California. And I think that, you know, to Katie's point about individuals making their own, you know, decisions about whether to go back to work or whether to, you know, put their kids in school. Florida schools have been open all year. We just reopened kind of in the spring. Um, But like, you know, we saw here over, you know, the winter surge that people 
didn't listen to the governor's orders. And so you saw these huge spikes in cases because people are going to Christmases and Thanksgivings and doing things that maybe the government was saying they shouldn't. Whereas maybe in Florida, there were people who were more vulnerable who looked around and were like, I don't care that you know, I can go to my favorite bar. I'm just going to stay home and have a cocktail instead. Um, So, yeah, I think that, like, it's, again, it's always, you don't have a control group, right? Like, there's no way to say how this all would have Yeah, it's not an experiment, not a controlled experiment. But I do think, and one thing that we really tried to hit on in this piece is, like, we have these two governors that are almost like avatars of the bipartisan split in America, and they're both rising stars in their parties. Um, The irony, of course, is that Newsom may end up coming out of this smelling pretty rosy, but he's still facing a recall, whereas DeSantis... You know, you can argue that people died in part because of his decisions. And he's like looking like he might be on the rise for a 2024 presidential run. So politics, man, we'll get to that with our next guest. Exactly. (laughs) But, you know, it's interesting this week, uh, you know, clearly California and Governor Newsom in particular kind of have Florida in in his head. You know, we he was saying (laughs) rent free uh, as our rent free. That's right. Uh, There was a press conference this week that he did with tourism officials. And somebody from the Tourism Bureau said, you know, there's a perception among Americans that Florida is more open than California and therefore more welcoming of visitors Uh, is is. To what extent is Governor DeSantis obsessed with California? That's fair as well, Scott, because, I mean, just this week, his press secretary was also tweeting about Gavin Newsom and California and, hey, Gavin Newsom, where are you? And so it's this interesting. <laughs> where do they want him to, to be? Well, they want him to be at the border with a bunch of guard <laughs> <Right>. troops. <laughs> support we know where he wasn't. French laundry. To Arizona. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's one of the things I love so much about this is because when Marisa, when you and I played our tape side by side of our two governors making their state of the state addresses this year in March, it was like one year after the pandemic. And both of them had the s- similar lines or even the same lines of we won. We're the ones that followed science and data. And it's really interesting that they really took such opposing philosophical, ideological, actionable approaches to this. Um, And both of them still feel as if their state won. It it does seem from your reporting that where there was one clear difference was that San Francisco, Marisa, seemed to do a much better job at reaching out to communities of color, especially the Latino community of the mission, which what you focused on, as opposed to what Katie found in, you know, in the Miami uh, Miami Gardens area. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, this is something that is partly because of San Francisco's history with things like the AIDS crisis. The whole Bay Area, I mean, really has a different public health play book. And we found that last year, actually, too. Um, But I also think that there was a real kind of groundswell of community-led efforts at the beginning of this pandemic in San Francisco to say, hey, we don't even know that much about this virus yet, but we know it's going to hit us harder than it probably will more affluent people, right? I mean, this is the whole thing. You you know, that's nice you get to stay home, but like not everyone has that option. And so I really give credit to the community grassroots groups who went to the mayor's office, went to UCSF, went to these different organizations, made the case early. And what we really found, Scott, is like the vaccine rates were probably so successful because these groups already had been working in the community all year. They had been handing out food. They had been giving help on jobs and rental assistance and eviction protections and testing and tracing. And so you didn't have like a random person knocking at your door. You had the person you already recognized. Yeah. And another way to describe that is trust. And, and Katie, that was something that seemed from your reporting that had to be built from not maybe not from the ground up, but there was a lot less infrastructure there. Yeah, that's very true. And especially in the case of Miami Gardens. And so for maybe Californians that don't know where Miami Gardens is, it's where the 2020 Super Bowl was held just before 
um, the outbreak of coronavirus. But it's the sense that cities and counties have really had to go to the state and ask the state for help. And in a lot of ways, the state's been helpful. But in a lot of ways, cities on their own, I've talked to a lot of like city commissioners across different parts of, of South Florida that have really had to say, oh, shoot, you know, I'm seeing neighborhoods in my city that are totally left out of this. I used to petition community groups and partner with community groups to create my own pop-up vaccine site here. And that's exactly what the city of Miami Gardens did. Um, And even then, I mean, on the day that I was there, only four or five people came in that whole day to get shots in May. And Florida as a whole has had a really big problem vaccinating black people. We're not doing a good job with that. And there's a lot of different reasons for that. But I think that's why it's such a good comparison with the Mission District in, in San Francisco, because it's not a monolithic group. You can't just say, oh, the black people in Miami Gardens don't want to get vaccinated. It's so much deeper than that. You know, there's cultural barriers, there's infrastructure, there's transportation was an issue. And so all of these things really combined, you go, oh, well, it's not just mistrust. It's mistrust plus a whole host of other factors. A lot of history there. Yeah. Katie Swatowski, um, we're going to write a book when DeSantis and Newsom challenge (laughs) each other for president, okay? 2028. Yes, we are. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for doing this project with me and for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Katie. Thank you. All right. We're going to take a short break now. And when we return, we'll be joined by Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee President Jessica Post. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions. Online or through Star One's mobile app, Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer, and we are joined today by Jessica Post. She is the woman Democrats have tasked with winning legislative majorities in state houses around the nation. Jessica, welcome to The Breakdown. Thank you so much for having me, Marissa and Scott. I really appreciate being here. Yeah, well, we're really excited to get into it with you. Um, We wanted to maybe start with today's big news, which was the Supreme Court decision upholding the Affordable Care Act for the third, kind of third time. Um, I want to ask you kind of your reaction because we've seen healthcare be such a wedge issue and something that Democrats have really successfully won on run on, not necessarily in 2020, but in years past. Does this change the politics of it heading into 22? I mean, does it, I don't know, take away an argument Democrats had? Or is it just, are you just happy that the ACA is still around? (laughs) Well, I, I think like most Americans, I'm happy that the ACA is still around. And that for the third time, the Supreme Court did not take action on it. But I think it really shows that so many of healthcare decisions play out in the states. And so as you know, California was a leader of the national resistance against Trump. And now with this lawsuit against the ACA, you see that these Republican states are doing the same thing. They'll continue to undermine national policy and they're doing that with health care. And in addition to that, they've done it by not expanding Medicaid. And so there's states like Texas that could accept so many more federal dollars that can continue to not expand Medicaid. So I think because of that, it'll be an issue that's still on the table. 
uh, that Republicans do still want to deny health care to, in, in some states, millions of Texans, and in other states, millions of folks in, in like my original home state of Missouri, where on the ballot, Missourians voted for Medicaid expansion, and the legislature continues to undercut it. Well, and, and that's, so- that's what I was going to ask you about, because that can be something to get voters out. You know, when you put an issue like that on the ballot to turn people out, uh, is there any chance of doing that in some of the other red states that you're trying to pick up seats for the, in the state house uh, as, you know, a ballot measure to, it's, of course, here it's pretty easy to get things on the ballot. It may be harder in some of those states. Yeah, there are some states that simply don't have initiative by petition in some of these red states. The Western states are have a democratic tradition that's maybe better than some of these others. So yes, I think, you know, in states like Michigan, that's a place that we were able to get. And when I say we, it truly was a citizen's initiative, but uh, redistricting reform as well as, um, as well as some voting rights progress on the ballot. And that's something that we couldn't get through the Republican controlled Michigan state legislature. So there have certainly been ways in states like Missouri, Oklahoma, Michigan to be able to advance things in that manner. We're so democratic here. We recall everyone. Um, (laughs) So I want to talk about 2020, um, not to look back too much, but it was not the year Democrats had hoped at the state house level. Right. And now this sets the stage for Republicans to dominate a decade of redistricting, understanding that the states are all very different and you really have a big job. I mean, what do you think what went wrong? Why do you think hopes were so much higher than how things actually turned out? Well, first of all, I'll tell you, it was much it was much worse in 2010, if that's imaginable. In 2010, Republicans had single party control of so many places and Democrats lost 21 state legislative chambers that night. And I've talked a lot about I was in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, in a bar that still allowed indoor smoking in 2010, which maybe I were raising Californians. And I, I needed to be peeled off of the Harrisburg sidewalk because I was just devastated. Um, and now here we are facing another presidential midterm election with um now President Biden. And I think we just have to perform better than what we did in in the 2010 election cycle. So as far as how we did, we certainly wish we would have won more state legislative seats. Um, Gerrymandering, it was a factor. Remember, they gerrymandered, as you know, the state legislature seats, as well as the congressional seats in states like Michigan, Pennsylvania, um, and many of our targets. I do think that as these lines are redrawn in states, we now have Democratic governors in states like um, Wisconsin who will be able to veto um, bad bad maps. And in addition to that, um, there's a lot more public accountability and knowledge of gerrymandering. And there's a willing legal strategy as well. And, you know, when I was at the DLTC as a junior staffer in 2010, uh, folks from states across the country came and asked for funds to litigate against gerrymandered state legislative maps, and the funds were not available. So I think one of the good things is that there's much more public awareness of gerrymandering and the effect on control of Congress. The other benefit is that because states like Texas and um, Florida just failed to fund their census, the number of seats, we expected Texas might get five more seats, and now they're projected to receive an in reapportionment many fewer seats than five. So that's actually quite a bit better. So 
there may have been, well, obviously a bad census count is not good for America. It may have decreased the impact of the losses. There were, there's always with every election, a lot of different factors that go in. Of course, Trump being on the ballot in 2020 drew out a lot of voters, more voters, I think. He got three, I think three or four million more voters, votes than he did in 2016. Um, but I'm just wondering, you know, as you look at the landscape, I know that some of the moderate Democrats in Congress, at least, right after the midterms, or I'm sorry, right after a lot of the 2020 November election, were saying that, you know, things like defund the police and Green New Deal, that those messages drove away a lot of moderate swing voters. Um, did you see that in state races as well? Yeah, I mean, certainly these were challenging issues in, in the 2020 election cycle. I, the surge of Trump voters was something that in, in many polls were simply not predicted. But yeah, absolutely. And look, I think we're working to figure out what the best ways are to respond to these continued attacks on socialism or on police reform. But our hope is that with the progress on the American Rescue Plan, the popularity of the Biden agenda, that we're focused just on getting the country out of this pandemic. And that becomes the key issue, whether it's the economy or health care. We think that we have a really good story to tell as Democrats going into 2022. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> I'm curious, though, I turned on Fox News this morning and they had no mention of the ACA case at SCOTUS, which all the other news were covering, and, and as well as, you know, the, the, the foster case out of Pennsylvania. Um, they are obsessively focusing on the board, the southern border. We see Texas Governor Greg Abbott say he's going to pay for his own wall. Uh, DeSantis, who we were just talking about at the top, is sending National Guard troops there. I mean, this seems like a clear political strategy. What do you make of that? I mean, is that something that you worry could be kind of, you know, a, a, a strong a, Trump ran on this in a lot of ways, right? Like, have things changed since then? Or like, how do you look at 22 when you think about that issue? Well, I think in some cases, these Trump voters just we may not see again in 2022. We saw them in 2018. We didn't see them in 2018. So I think that's one big factor that some of the voters that Trump really motivated and really Trump has gone against a number of people in the Republican Party, especially with his continued pushing of the big lie to try to get the election overturned. And so there's been a disconnect, I think, between some of the Republicans. But yeah, Republicans constantly want to create their own reality. They are very good at framing issues like immigration in ways that are favorable to them. And so we just have to be stalwart and we're doing a lot of work right now, for example, in Virginia, where we have 2021 elections on talking about things like the American Rescue Plan and talking about the work the Virginia legislature did in something like vocational education. So I think one big learning from 2020 is the need to try to reframe the debate because Republicans did a lot of defining of the debate in these states. Do you think that they, are there some ways in which you sort of either admire grudgingly the way they're able to do that? Because they do seem to come up with these phrases, you know, death taxes and all kinds of things that really resonate with voters and Democrats for whatever reason, they try to, you know, release their 12, you know, page policy position and voters don't, aren't interested in that. Yeah, I mean, I think they know that their agenda would be unpopular if they didn't have a sales pitch for it. And so as a result, they've come up with like these pithy taglines um, that are not necessarily that don't really represent sometimes what they're trying to do and sometimes don't represent what Democrats are trying to do. But they are excellent at polling and branding their agenda. Uh, but I think they have to do that. But yeah, certainly but don't do. Democrats have to do it also? Oh, yeah. Look, there are times as Democrats where we, we really admire it. And you know that we've that we've really landed a punch on 
on, for example, Jim Crow 2.0, because they've been trying to do everything they can to move us away from that core message that this isn't the the work in the state legislatures by Republicans denying folks to vote isn't Jim Crow 2.0. So they've done a lot of work. Um, they would sort of combating that. They don't like the phrase voter suppression because they know it's a losing issue for them. And so they've they've tried to do a lot with their slogans. So I think we've we've landed some things uh, and I think we'll continue to, uh, especially with the popularity of President Biden. That's, I think, one big advantage we have. I mean, the other thing that I think Republicans have been successful at is playing the long game. And I think, you know, you see the ability of Democrats to do this in some place like Georgia, where Stacey Abrams, you know, a decade ago laid out a plan that wasn't to flip the state overnight. It was a long, you know, a long road. And I noticed in the memo you wrote in March about all of this, um, you know, you guys name a lot of states and some of them are places you're hoping to flip. And some of them are places like New Mexico, where you're really looking to protect majorities. I just I, I wonder, like, how much you see this as not just about 22 or 24, but about the next 10 to 20 years? Yeah. Look, we're writing a decade-long strategy at DLCC. And when I was hired as then executive director, Stacey Abrams was part of the board as minority leader of the the Georgia state legislature. So we, I, I was in a lot of initial meetings with Stacey as she was developing that plan. And so this year I said, we're we're sort of done at just being a little bit reductive at gaining power. We need to write a decade-long strategy to win in the states. Republicans have been very smart about understanding the levers of power. As soon as they decided that they wanted to go after school curriculum and slavery, they decided to launch an organization to win school boards. They've been funding the state legislative level for decades, and they've gotten a great return on investment for their work. They've been able to draw legislative lines and congressional lines, and they maintained a near majority in the U.S. House for a decade. Uh, which was not representative at all of how people felt. So I completely agree. Um, Our goal is to to just change the debate, win 50 state legislative chambers by 2030, and to really push and work to have our donors, Democrats across the country, really understand that for us to build sustainable majorities, we have to think about all of the levers of power. And I think if people understood, look, voter suppression in state legislatures, that's affecting the outcome of winning the presidency. That's affecting the ability for us to win the U.S. Senate. The districts, the gerrymandered districts, legislatures do that. That's the U.S. House. And in many state legislatures, they're trying to change the way electoral votes are divided. And you saw at the end where uh, President Biden was trying to assure electoral ascertainment. Right now, Republicans' legislatures are trying to take that power back from the Secretary of States and from election administrators. It is very scary. And if we as Democrats don't take state legislatures seriously, we're going to be behind um, and unable to win the U.S. Senate. It'll be difficult for us to sustain uh, the majority and win the presidency, even though our issue agenda is much more popular and we have national support. Republicans are just much smarter about power. So that's what I'm trying to do as president of DLCC, get that word out that we have to win at the state legislative level for sustainable power for the Democratic Party for the next decade. Getting short on time, but what to what extent do you think that the pandemic and Democrats in many places just deciding not to go door to door, Republicans continued to do that. How big a problem was that for Democrats? Obviously a problem that won't be around in, or we hope, in 2022. (laughs) I I think it was a a huge problem for Democrats to just be very candid. Some Democrats did continue door knocking, but many of our volunteers did not want to continue knocking. I'll give you an example. There was a guy named Doug Irvin who ran in Arizona in a swing district 
and you know he looked like an accountant he was door knocking with his his uh tucked in polo shirt and boat shoes and he knocked on a voter's door and and fox news um like marissa was articulating he's like blaring in the background and they said to him doug are you a socialist and he said look at me i'm an accountant like i'm i'm for fiscal responsibility but it, it's much easier for our folks to be made a caricature like a sort of socialist caricature if they are not um, knocking on doors and talking to voters face to face and that communication. And so that was one of our big learnings um, and in every single special election. And we've won some in states like New Hampshire since then, we've really doubled down on door knocking and the importance of that. Um, and that has led to a lot of electoral success for us as we've been able to get that back on. All right, less than 30 seconds. What's the, yeah? What's the top of your list? Like who? Where? What states are you going to be spending the most time in, or the most time on? And don't say Texas. <laughs> we'll start with Minnesota. Democrats don't control the Minnesota State Senate. That's a we could get a Democratic trifecta and make a ton of progress there. Um, Michigan, new lines because of this nonpartisan commission. So that's a huge target of ours. Pennsylvania will get better lines out of uh, that state as well. We'll look a lot at Arizona, where we wouldn't have this crazy audit in Maricopa County if we had just flipped two seats in one legislature or one chamber of the legislature. So those are at the top of our list. Um, of course, we'll, we'll build long term in Texas. We'll build long term in Georgia um, and in North Carolina. And then we're going to go after getting New Hampshire back as well. So we right. Any of those legislatures. Good luck. I hope you maybe like get to sleep once in a while. Thank you. This Thanks is for having me. Yeah, Thanks, we appreciate it. All right, that is going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Tovin Lindsay, Vinnie Tong, Otis Taylor, and Erica Aguilar. I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. I'm on Twitter at M Lagos. Stay cool out there. It's a scorcher in California. Hi, I'm David Axelrod, CNN's senior political commentator, former senior advisor to President Obama, and host of the Axe Files podcast. Join me each week as I interview key figures shaping our world from politics to the arts to sports and beyond. Listen on your favorite podcast app or ask your smart speaker to play The Axe Files with David Axelrod. A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis. From KQED Podcasts comes On Our Watch Season 2, New Folsom. A story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.